Well, we're continuing our look at the book of Nehemiah. Our series is titled, How to Get Things Done and Get Along Too. And yes, we do mention that almost every time we begin to preach a message in this series. But that's because of a simple principle that, that I believe. And that's this, that review is the key to learning. <clears throat> review is the key to learning. Some of you ask me frequently, why do we go over those major points of the book every time we have a sermon? And, uh, you know, it's real simple. I think that by the time we're done with Nehemiah, you'll understand clearly how the book is divided and what its major emphasis is. And so why don't we do that even one more time? Let's review quickly before we get into part two of our message today, Backbones and Drawing Boards, remember very briefly that Nehemiah illustrates how the children of Israel not only got things done, which means they rebuilt the wall, but they got along. In other words, they reformed the people. They did this in three ways, and the book is divided into these three parts. God chose a leader. He anointed a man. He showed favor upon an individual. And, and, and the Israelites were able to rebuild the wall and reform the people by, first of all, having strong and sensitive leadership. Second of all, they were able to um, develop a, a bold and insightful approach to opposition. And that's what we're talking about today. And as we'll begin in a few weeks, we'll see the last element was that they had a, a deliberate return to scriptural authority. I'm excited about those messages already, and I can't wait to present those to you from the Word of God in a few weeks. But let's begin tonight and wrap up um, this series of messages dealing with how they approached opposition. Now, this morning we told you that Nehemiah had a very bold approach to opposition. And we spent a good bit of time talking about the biblical concept of boldness, not only as seen in Nehemiah's life, but it's also seen in other scriptural examples. Now, remember, boldness in Nehemiah's example consisted of two things. What we call imprecatory prayers. When you really seek God's justice, not just personal revenge, but also impassioned pleas. Now, I like to say that imprecatory prayers, that's um, boldness that is directed upward. We ask God to intervene. Impassioned to please, however, would be uh, boldness directed outwardly. Very important that we understand that we have that ability and that right, so to speak, to be bold with God and to be bold with man. We define the boldness as simply this. It is allowing the person, work and or word of God to determine my actions Instead of letting circumstances, emotions, or relationships control my reactions. And there's no doubt God was in the middle of our service this morning. His spirit was moving. I know I'm long-winded and many of you were here a long time. But God's spirit was convicting the hearts of people in this church. Some of you, and we're in relationships. You're involved in habits. There are things going on that you are afraid to deal with and afraid to move on. All because you're letting other people, relationships, or circumstances, or potential circumstances, affect your reactions. 
as opposed to standing firm on God's word or how you know God will move his character and then making your decision based on that. And I I exhort you and as your pastor, I implore you. Be bold in your walk with God. But there's another way to approach opposition, and that's Nehemiah's insightful approach. You know, not only did Nehemiah act boldly, but he acted insightfully. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 4 now. At his insightful approach. Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's begin in verse... um, Seven. Of course, you know that the Arabs, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repairs of the walls went on. And the bridges began to be uh, closed. And they were very angry. And so they conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Verse 9, they prayed to their God. Yes, they were very bold. But look at the rest of verse 9 now. Nehemiah 4. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. You see, Nehemiah knew that we pray, but then we plan. We pray and then we plan. We are bold upwardly and we are bold outwardly, but then we're insightful in how we uh, handle the opposition from a human point of view. Let's read some verses here. Notice what Nehemiah did from his vantage point to uh, stand against the opposition. Look at this insightful leadership he exhibited. He set up a guard against them day and night. Uh, verse 10 talks about how the, the burden bearers, their strength was failing. The enemies were taunting them, even saying several times, we're going to come and get you when you're not ready. In verses uh, 11 and 12. In verse 13, watch this, what Nehemiah does. And then I stationed a man in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the exposed places. And I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, then we all returned to the wall. So there was a space and time, apparently, in which they were not on the wall in a focused way. Why? Because Nehemiah had to adjust his plans To stand against the opposition. He had to act insightfully in how he utilized his human resources. Verse 16. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears. You see, Nehemiah knew. Yes, the overall project here, the grand vision is the rebuilding of the wall. But if my people, if the ones who've got to build the wall either are attacked or are frustrated or are defeated emotionally or even physically, the grand vision will not occur. Nehemiah was insightful and knew I've got to not only involve myself in a construction project, but I'm involved in a military endeavor as well. And so he insightfully and accurately developed a plan whereby both could be accomplished. Let's continue reading in verse 16. Half did the work, half held the spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. And that's where we get the phrase uh, building and battling. Uh, Verse 18 is for the builders. Each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. 
And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. You see these insightful plans? Nehemiah recognized the fear that was in his, in his army of workers. And he impassionately pleaded with them, do not give up. But then he insightfully developed a plan that would on an outward level help relieve their fear. And that was this. We'll continue working. But we'll split up the work. Some will be considered warriors. Some will be considered workers. We'll guard each other. We'll protect each other. We'll have someone on a lookout tower. He'll watch for the surprise attacks. If he blows the trumpet, rally to where the center point is and God will fight for us. He was bold, but he was also insightful in developing plans that would, on, a, on an outward human level, relieve fear and emotional fatigue. Look at verse 21. What a great verse. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. The implication there is that the other half, they were holding spears and working, and the other half would probably also assist in military endeavors. At that time I said to the people, verse 22, Let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. The workload really increased, didn't it? So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. What a great chapter on the insightful leadership of Nehemiah in standing against opposition. I like to call this area, and you'll see this behind me, uh, innovative plans. In other words, in boldness, we utilize imprecatory prayers and impassioned pleas. But in insightful leadership... We utilize innovative plans. And on this, we are addressing the issue of progress. I want to say to you, there is no progress without innovative thinking. Without innovatively considering what, should, what can we do to further the work of God. Because opposition will attack you where you are. They will try to stop you. And if you let them and say, well, they stopped us. This must be the end of what we can do. <clears throat> then pretty much they win and you lose the privilege of being involved in a work of God. But thinking innovatively means that we're willing to do something other than what we thought in order to accomplish the grand vision. I like to call it simply this. What is insight? Insight is adjusting the methods without abandoning the mission. Wow, we need to hear more of that, don't we? Too many of us, and even right now, I sense among you perhaps, you're worried that, that I'm suggesting that we change what uh, our overall mission, that we abandon and go away from the, from the foundational truth that, that God has laid for us and the overall vision He's given us. Not at all. Innovation is not uh, fiddling and changing and adjusting a God-given mandate. The Great Commission has no room for negotiation. But how we accomplish that may. Are you with me? Are you listening? Insight is adjusting the methods without abandoning the mission. Look over in chapter 6. Let me show you another example of Nehemiah's insight. As you know, they were trying to entrap him in the last part of the chapter. And they sent some false prophets 
to deliver a message that was apparently from God about meeting in the temple. Because that's where you could hide Nehemiah. But Nehemiah knew the law of God. That that was reserved strictly for a... Uh, for the Levitic tribe and especially areas that were restricted only for the for the priests and the high priest. Why would he go in there to hide in fear when he was not even probably allowed to enter in there? He knew the law of God and he was insightful enough to know that the opposition, if it's really from God, that would not really contradict the word of God he'd already received. The man of God is not going to contradict the word of God. And he insightfully saw through the enemy, so to speak. And he refused to go in, as he said in the last part of chapter 6. He said in verse 11, Should I, a man like me, flee? And would, uh, could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived, I insightfully saw, he says, that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Nehemiah was insightful in how he handled his opposition, how he handled his people. Oh, for insightful leadership in today's church. Oh, for innovative plans in which leaders and congregations adjust methods without abandoning the mission. I want to say to you that any good organization who wishes to stay around and meet the needs of people. They know this. Microsoft, while I'm not advocating any certain of these companies, I want to just explain to you from a, from a corporate sense this same concept. Microsoft was one of the very first software companies to be, a, to be, fanatic, to be a fanatic about feedback and criticism from their constituents. Typically, before the... the, 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 the um, popularity of Microsoft products. You lived with what you had until the next thing came out. But they began to get feedback and input and they sought constructive criticism. And it propelled Microsoft to, to make some real changes and innovations in how software began to be developed and how it was user-friendly and made a huge difference in the computer industry. Because they were willing to adjust their methods without abandoning their mission. I think about retail markets and stores in that arena. <clears throat> you know, there wasn't too long ago when, when the majority of shopping was done in the daytime. But you go now to most stores, Sears, Pennies, uh, the majority of their sales are done at night. And a huge transition came when people began to hire and staff their stores for nighttime Shopping. Why did that occur? Because of two-income families. Suddenly, moms were going to work as well. And the shopping force, so to speak, was very limited. And most retail stores had to adjust their inventory, their, uh, their hiring, their staffing in order to accommodate this new trend. If they didn't, they would have lost the mission. But they were innovative. Sam Walton especially. And his son says about him in a, in a book I recently read, Corporate Management, that most folks thought, he said, most folks thought my dad was a genius and had a clearly laid strategy about how to build Walmart. He says, my dad changed every day. He said there were memos consistently and constantly going out about how we had to adjust methods in order to meet 
the, the lower end of retail. That was our mission, to help the average consumer. And the book makes a, almost a humorous point out of how what appeared to be a clear strategy was almost a daily change effort in staying true to their mission. You know, in our families, we do this without any problem. And I'm living proof that we do. Take, for instance, your kids. You're newly married. You have a kid. You, you double teaming. You double teamer, don't you? I mean, raising one kid, it's two of y'all, one of them. Things go pretty well. You have another child. It's man to man, isn't it? You can handle that. Have three, and you kind of then sometimes go to a to a zone. And when you have four or more, you know. You pray. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. Most of us don't raise four children the way we raise one child. We adjust our methods, but you know what we never do? We've never abandoned the mission of raising a godly heritage. Why is it that we are so quick and able to adjust methods in so many environments, but let us come to the walls of the church, let us come inside God's house, the environment that is to be a lighthouse to the world, and we so quickly hold on to preferences and methods that are so extra-biblical, it, it worries me sometimes. You realize that one of those would be service times. When I was growing up, 11 o'clock was the service time. That was only brought about because of the farmer's Early on in our, in our times, would get their chores done, their cows would get milked, and then they'd finally have a, have a break. You ask most farmers today, that's about the time their breaks began. And so they began the community church service in light of the farmers. You know, 11 o'clock is really not in the Bible. <laughs> and I know a lot of you will be frustrated when I say this. But in the New Testament, when Christ completely fulfilled the law, He didn't destroy it. He fulfilled it. He was uh, the fulfillment of, of the law. We also have now the freedom to worship on other days. Some of you are very Sabbath-oriented, but you call it Sunday. Sabbath is the last day of the week. And you transfer that and say, well, it has to be Sunday. The truth is, Paul said in the epistles to the Corinthians... One man regards another day above another. But it shouldn't be that way. He said, you know what? God, looking at your heart. Here, I'm, what I'm saying to you is this. The early church chose to meet on the first day of the week. Yes, Sunday. But there's room there for you to worship God on other days. And so we've seen the development of Saturday night services. We've seen the development of Sunday afternoon um, evangelistic efforts. I remember when Sunday night... Um, I remember when I was told about Sunday night development and how that was the evangelistic um, arm of the Christian community. That they'd hold their morning services for church and worship, but that these traveling evangelists, uh, Billy Sunday and, and those types, would make their rounds. And Sunday night was when would great communities would gather together and, and people would be saved by the droves on Sunday night. I'm not saying we should cancel Sunday night. I'm not saying we should go back to that. What I'm saying is that throughout our time in church history, methods have been changed and adjusted to accommodate the mission. Sometimes I wonder if we have that courage still. 
I've been in auditoriums and heard preachers blatantly rant against technology. And they'll go to Revelation. And they'll talk there about the mark of the beast. And they'll continue with how... Uh, with, with fear tactics on new technology and where that's going to lead. And there's no biblical basis at all. And I've often said to myself and others, don't confuse technology with theology. You see what I'm saying? I think sometimes we're so afraid of innovative changes and new methods that, that we hunker down in our bunkers and fight the very thing that, may, that maybe could be used to further the gospel. To propagate God's message. I say to you, Nehemiah knew the delicate balance between methods and mission. Do we? There are some real uh, issues we're praying about in our church right now. We're praying about what is our next proactive step in reaching this community. For the most part, our building on Sunday mornings is... Is full. It's not capacity yet, but it's full. It's 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 a it's a where we want to be. 180, 200. But as we grow and as God begins to move here and as people are saved and discipled, I don't want us waiting and then reacting to an overflow crowd one year. What should we do now? What benchmarks can we put in place to say, at this certain point, we're going to go this direction? This is what God's Spirit is saying to us and how God would lead us. I'm not sure we should just automatically assume it's another service on Sunday morning. Maybe it would be another innovative way to accommodate God's work in this community. What are the felt needs of these people all around us? Look at these windows, the houses, the apartments, the condos. What are their felt needs? And is there a better way? To spread the good news of the gospel, to, to win, baptize, and teach. Let's think outside the box. Let's be innovative. With, and let's adjust our methods without abandoning our mission. Perhaps we should consider making our Sunday night environment another service opportunity. Maybe we have an entire slate of weekend services as opposed to one slot Sunday morning and then different things. Why not maybe offer three or four different times throughout the weekend? Options are a, are a hot commodity these days. People like the fact that they can choose. That may be an area in which we should consider some innovation. Now, I want to tell you straight, uh, very honestly and straightforward that I'm not pushing a certain agenda here. In fact, I'll be so transparent with you. And as your pastor, you may not like this, but I'm not sure I know what to do right now. And that's why I'm comfortable preaching this message. I, this is not a, a backdoor opportunity to get my way. I'm not going to slide in at the minute, in the last minute here and tell you what I think God has told me. I don't know what we should do in regards to our future growth. But I know that our elders are inviting all of our church to meet together on Tuesday mornings to pray about this for one month. We're calling it strategic prayer. I know that in April, the elders are meeting for a full half a day to discuss in light of our months of prayer, what do we think is our next proactive step? Here's what I'm after. I'm after to get us to put aside our preferences, including mine, in order to pursue God's agenda. You see, I'll be, I'll be very candid with you. Probably the thing I would want to do, and that I like most, is to preach. <laughs> okay, It wouldn't bother me at all if we just 
had multiple preaching services. That really fits my personality. It really fits uh, my gifts. But is that really what's best for our church? Perhaps we can, should consider some what God is saying to our body and how He's using the gifts of other people. It's not just about me. Do you get it? And I'm asking the same from you. I know many of you, most of you, and I know your hearts are, God, what, what do you want for our church? But let's just be real frank. You have preferences too. And some of you are just like me. You have your own style of music you like. You have a reason you like a Sunday night the way it is. Or you have a reason you like the home groups the way they are. Or you have a reason that you prefer that we start at this time. And I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is, I don't want you or me to stop God's work because of a preference or a method. I would rather us adjust those in order to accomplish the mission. That's what we call insightful leadership. It's also mentioned in Scripture in three other places. Let me briefly mention to you some other passages that, that give us precedence for adjusting the methods without abandoning the mission. Exodus chapter 18. You recall this story. I like to say it's when Moses let go. He was sitting all day judging the people, and his father-in-law, Jethro, approached him. You can read this in Exodus 18. Jot this chapter down and refer to it later. He watched Moses for a day, and then he approached Moses, and he said, Moses, what you are doing is not a good thing. And he instructed Moses in that uh, you're going to wear out. And what you think you're doing now won't be done at all. We're going to lose you completely. Moses, this is not a good thing. And he said, why don't you divide the... The leaders and the people in tens, hundreds and thousands, and appoint judges and leaders. And let them judge and, and determine the smaller matters. And they can bring the, the bigger issues to you. And Moses did that. You see what happened there is they made some changes. And I'm sure there were some whiny people. Well, we know there were in the Israelite camps. I can hear one woman or man now, can't you? Well, last time Moses heard this, I want to talk to the main man and the judge of that thousand groups, so to speak, might have said, well, this is an issue that we can handle ourselves. Well, I want to speak to Moses. I mean, you can hear it, right? But he had to make some changes. He had had to adjust his methods in order to accomplish the mission, which was what? That the people had an ear. The people had a form to judge the, the discrepancies. If Moses keeps it all to himself and passes away, then there's no system left. The mission is abandoned. Oh, I'm thankful that Moses' father-in-law stepped in. Aren't you? I'm also reminded in Acts 6, what I call the apostles raising up. What did they raise up? Who did they raise up? Deacons. That's right. The Grecian widows were upset. Perhaps rightly so. They weren't being cared for in the proper way. And that is one of the roles of the church. Care for, care for widows and orphans. We take that seriously here. But in response, the apostles did not drop what they were doing, which was the ministry of word and prayer, which is the reason the church grew. They didn't drop what they were doing and run to the widows and just address the squeaky wheel. They said, let's think outside the box. What would God want us to do? And the plan, the innovative plan, which you think is pretty common now, but in that day and age, this was innovation. 
find six, seven other guys. Let's call them servants. And we've translated that word now to deacons because the Greek word for servant is deacon. It's an actually, it's a transliterated Greek word we use. And so they chose these men full of the Holy Ghost who would oversee the task of ministering to the widows. And thus your creation of deacons. Because someone had innovative plans. Because they adjusted their methods and did not abandon their mission. I also think in Acts 8, when the church split up. That's right, you heard me correctly. The church split up. You see, the church was centered there in Jerusalem. And no doubt was growing just rapidly. But persecution came in Acts 8. And it was God's way of getting the gospel Around the world. People scattered, the Bible says. But when they scattered, the next phrase says, and they all went about preaching the gospel. You see, I don't think if they'd have had an elders meeting in that first church and talked about their rapid growth, that they'd have thought about splitting up. They'd have probably done what we did, <laughs> wouldn't they? They'd have said, let's go to two services. Let's build another building. But God said, I've got a different plan for you because my mission is so important. I now have a new method for you. I'm going to test you and persecute you. And I'm going to split this church up and get it all across the world. God thinks outside the box, doesn't he? I'm thankful that in these three instances, there were men who were insightful leaders. God used people willing to adjust their methods. Without abandoning their mission. Can I give you a simple tip tonight? Insightful leadership means that you will revise plans in order to refine the vision. Hear me out on this one, okay? Insightful leadership means you will revise your plans in order to refine your vision. Let me give you an example. Brad Miller. We've mentioned him a couple of times. He's a new Christian in our church, a couple years old. Uh, sold out to God. God's working on his life. And he's undergone some opposition as of late. There's no doubt about it. Brad has a real heart's desire to go into ministry. The day he came into my office and we were sitting and talking and praying. and God has really given me some, some I think, some real direction in regards to Brad. And God's not going to tell Brad's, uh, his, his will for me to, for me. He's not going to tell Brad's, uh, God's not going to give his will for Brad's life to me. Okay, I want to clear that up. But he does give us... As partners, he gives us uh, the ability to encourage and exhort one another. And I just sense that the things happening to Brad, his surgery with his back, uh, just some different things that have happened recently in his business. You know, he's a home builder. I just sensed in my heart that the opposition's trying to stop him. And I encouraged him and implored him. I said, Brad, don't quit. Don't give up on God. Don't go back. But at the same time... I said, Brad, I don't want you to, to not pursue the vision God's given you for, for being in ministry. I mean, he's, he'll tell you straight out. My heart's not in home building anymore. My heart is, is to minister for God as much as I can. To make that happen, and Brad has told me this, this was his idea, and he really feels like he needs to go to school to get more Bible training. And I would concur with that 100%. But he came in and he said, Todd, I just can't do that right now. He said, there's just not room on my plate for anything else. There's not enough in my checkbook to make that happen. He said, I, 
I do trust God. I'm not trying to bail. I'm not trying to stop. He said, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And I referred right back to Nehemiah. I said, you know what, Brad? Let me ask you. Is your heart still pursuing ministry? For you? Does your heart want to obey God's calling it no matter what? He said, yes. I said, that's the weightier issue is your heart. I said, we've got that settled. You will obey God no matter what. I said, now we've got to look at reality and we may have to revise some plans here. But we're not going to bend to the mission, right? He said, right. So you know what? For now, school is on hold. He didn't like that. I didn't like that. But the reality is that with his back and his job having to be on hold for a little bit, then when he gets his back back in place and he gets his business back going again... We've got to take some time to build up those funds and to build up his back and to strengthen his other areas so that when he goes to school, they're not going to just totally stop and fall off. That's called revising plans, but not in order to refine the vision. I want to say to you, all of us need to have that approach. That we, in order to refine the vision God's given us, we'll revise whatever plans we need to. Nehemiah, I don't think, wanted to stop having 100% concentration on the wall, did he? But he knew if he didn't revise his plans and develop some military strategies and have some warriors and some workers, that he would probably lose the battle totally. Insightful leadership means you'll revise plans in order to refine the vision. You know, in light of this morning and tonight, let me give you four quick things I think we ought to do. And I do want to mention these quickly. I'll flash these behind me. Write these down quickly. Four action points to do, to, uh, things we can, we can attempt in light of a bold approach and an insightful approach to opposition. First of all, I think we should stand on the Word of God. Amen? Stand on the Word of God. Not your preferences, not your fears, and not other people's concepts, but stand on the Word of God. That's the foundation for boldness. Number two, speak up for the cause of God. I think a lot of you have your feet firmly planted in the Word of God and your mouth tightly closed for the cause of God. Excuse me. I think there should be both. When your feet are firmly planted, when your heart is concretely set on the truth of God, then open up your mouth wide and speak up for the cause of Christ. Number three, See through the enemy of God. Do you recall in our first sermon on this idea of opposition, we highlighted primarily how all four of the attacks against Nehemiah were disguised. We must not lose sight of this. Satan always attacks in a disguised fashion. Opposition always shows up with a costume on. And as you stand on the Word of God and speak up for the cause of God, see through the enemy of God. What is it that's working against you right now? What is Satan using to try to stop you? You're, you're the downturn in your job. The friends who think you're a fanatic. The spouse who suddenly is not really crazy about you going to church. The car that broke down and month after month and the repairs are getting so expensive. The illness with, with your kids that just won't go away and the doctor bills. All those things. Let me ask you a question. Could it be 
at the opposition, the enemy is out to stop you, you bet. And that's why you can't come down and you can't go back. But instead, you take bold and insightful approaches to opposition. See through the enemy of God. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. And he appears often as an angel of light. Don't be fooled. Number four, stay loose in the work of God. I like this one the most. You know, a lot of us, our hands grip too tightly to the things that God allows us to be stewards of. And instead of being managers, we think we're owners. Well, the reality, according to Scripture, is that we are only stewards. We are only managers. We are only allowed by the grace of God to, so to speak, uh, so to speak, oversee His work. And God has the right and the authority and the privilege to move you in and out of His work as He deems best. So stay loose in the work of God. I'm not advocating that people accept pastorates or ministry roles for a month and leave. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. It's a mindset. That if God were to put me here, I'll do it. And if God were to bring someone else in there and put me over here, I'll do that. It's a mindset I'm advocating that says, you know what? It's not about me. It's about God. It's not about my preferences. It's about God's mission. It's not about my methods. It's about God's mandate. That's what we're advocating. Don't read into this or misread this. I'm simply saying we should stay loose in the work of God. Paul did this, didn't he? He was consistently uh, flexible and loose. So should we. And I think if we were to be looser in the work of God, held a li- uh, had a lighter grasp on things we thought were ours, our ministries, our possessions, our finances, we'd find that God would probably do things that we never dreamed of because we'd be a lot more likely to adjust our plans without abandoning His mission.